Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. If you would turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 20, 2 Kings chapter 20, and while you're turning there, let me tell you how thankful I am to be here at Southeastern. And I don't know if you know how blessed you are as students to be here at this place. Uh, with such an excellent faculty, excellent administrators, excellent vision and mission uh, at a really, really special time in the history of Southeastern Seminary. It's a a really uh, an incalculable pleasure and and blessing for you to be here uh, right now at this place. 2 Kings chapter 20, I'd like for us to start reading with verse 12 and read on down through verse 19. 2 Kings 20, 12 through 19, and since this is the word of the living God, would you join me in standing out of reverence for the voice of our King? The Holy Spirit says this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present for Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to Hezekiah, the king, and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. Something was happening at the Vatican, and I can't exactly remember uh, what it was. I don't remember if it was a a new revelation about the sexual abuse scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't uh, remember if it was some sort of disorienting uh, synod meeting, uh, debating issues over divorce and remarriage and, and communion. Uh, I don't remember if maybe it was the controversy over uh, allowing the Chinese government to be involved in the appointing of bishops uh, in China. I don't remember what exactly the controversy was. I just remember seeing on social media uh, a friend of mine that I knew to be a really devoted Roman Catholic uh, put up a video of an old 1991 REM song losing my religion. Just the clip of the song, and I immediately thought, is she losing her faith? Is that what she's trying to communicate to people? 
And several people uh, apparently started asking her that on social media, and she said, no, I'm not losing my faith, but I'm afraid that I'm losing my church. She said, because I've always thought of my church as having this stability and having this integrity, and it seems to be falling apart. So for her, that old song, Losing My Religion, seemed to communicate that. And, and that is not an unusual thing. You can see that old song show up even now, 30 years later, all over the place whenever you have a news clip or a documentary about maybe an ex-evangelical, someone who was uh, identified as a Christian who now is an atheist or an agnostic or who has walked away from organized religion. And it's easy to see why, because of the lyrics, which uh, the the artists, R.E.M., they say this, that's me in the corner, that's me in the spotlight, losing my religion, trying to keep up with you, and I don't know if I can do it. Oh no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. Now, these lyrics are a little bit cryptic and that's the way that this band was coming out of Athens, Georgia. Uh, Some of their lyrics could have multiple sorts of interpretation. But American Songwriter Magazine noted not long ago, looking back on this song and this music, is that it's largely misunderstood. And it's misunderstood even by a lot of these news broadcasts and these documentary makers because it's not really an attack on Christianity the way that it seems to be. It's really not calling for a kind of spirituality without religion, although you can see why someone would think that. Instead, they argued there is a sadness through this song. There's a lament through this song because John Michael Stipe, who was uh, the songwriter with REM, was from a long line of Methodist ministers in his family. Father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and now he was a, a devotee of a kind of Americanized California Zen Buddhism, what they call mindfulness uh, sometimes in American culture. But His song really wasn't about that. It wasn't about losing his Christianity. Instead, American Songwriter Magazine pointed out, he was using instead that old Southern expression about losing one's temper, about being at the end of one's rope, about when, as they put it, politeness gives way to anger. So the the sort of thing that somebody in Athens, Georgia, or in my hometown, Biloxi, Mississippi, or in lots of other places across the South would say something along the lines of, I've been in this line to get my driver's license for so long that I'm fixing to lose my religion. Or if this person comes into my cubicle and screams at me one more time, I'm going to lose my religion. So it's not actually about religion, it's about Southern culture and human relationships. And yet, when I look at that, I don't really accept that as the whole story, because I think those two things are connected. We're living at a time right now 
where there are many people in American culture and there are many people within the church who have deep fears about the integrity of the church, about the integrity of the faith, about the integrity of anything real. And sometimes when you look around and you see the sort of secularization that is happening in North American culture, in Western culture, you see some of the arguments that are uh, taking place that people never would have predicted would take place. You see sometimes people who have an outright hostility to Christianity or to organized religion, sometimes we tend to respond to that as though it were a badge of honor. Sometimes we respond to that by saying to ourselves, well, Jesus told us that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, will be persecuted. Well, we tend to have that mentality. Well, we're hated by the world just as Jesus is hated by the world. And of course, that's true in every era. But it seems to me there is something else going on there. Behind some of this secularization, there's not a bored indifference to Christianity. There's often a simmering rage. And the rage is not because Christianity believes in transcendent moral norms, but because people fear that Christianity does not believe in those things. That Christianity instead uses an appeal to transcendence, uses an appeal to moral integrity when it's useful to the church and ignores those things when it's not. That's not a new challenge. That's not a new challenge at all. First and second Kings, if you just spend time reading through the entire text of First and Second Kings, you'll find it's a really scary book. And you have a, a depiction of one after the other of evil and faltering kings. In my sort of evangelical homeschooling uh, ecosystem uh, where I live right now with, with our children, uh, five boys, I find myself saying a lot to my wife, something along these lines. Jonah is over at Moses' house. They're going to go pick up Micah, and then they're going to go over to Jeremiah's. A lot of biblical names. But one of the things that I notice is that those names, including with my own kids, are heavily prophetic rather than kingly from the Old Testament. There, there's a Josiah here or there. There's a David uh, here or there. But there aren't a lot. And why? Because it's easier to find prophets' names in the Old Testament uh, for which you would want to name your children than it is to find kings. No one in his or her right mind is going to name a child Ahab. One of the few, though, that you have in First and Second Kings is Hezekiah. Even at a time where what the word is attempting to say to us is that the prophets are carrying a word and the word has integrity even when the institutions do not. This king, Hezekiah, one of the good ones, 
praised in the text of Scripture. He's someone in chapter 18 who is like David. He tore down the high places. He held fast to the Lord. He rebelled against the Assyrians, uh, the, the, the enemies of God. And yet you come to this account that we read some moments ago, and it's strange. And it's even stranger that this account is not just here, it's also reproduced almost verbatim in Isaiah chapter 39. And the question is, why? There doesn't seem to be a lot taking place here other than simple foreshadowing. You have the people of God who are facing a threat from the Assyrians uh, to, to wipe them out. You have a king, Hezekiah, who was healed by God. He was given 15 more years of life and was given a, a, a miraculous sign that he could trust God on this. And now he's receiving these ambassadors, these envoys from Babylon, from that big, powerful world superpower in the world at the time. And this text shows us a critical fracture in the integrity of the kingdom. Now, this is important for you as people who are being trained and equipped for ministry because your integrity, your moral character, your conformity to the word of Christ, your doctrinal holding together and how that's lived out is going to be challenged. It's being challenged now in ways you can't see. It will be challenged later on in ways that you will be able to see. And you're going to see the exact same sort of skirmish and pull that you see in the life of Saul, in the life of David, but also that pull toward Hezekiah will be yours as well. So I want us to look at two things today. First thing is this, the integrity of the kingdom reframes the present in light of the past. Why are these envoys coming? They're coming because they heard that Hezekiah had been sick and now Hezekiah is well. There's, there's something remarkable that is taking place here that they want to see. So in some ways, similar to the wise men coming from the east to, to Bethlehem because they've seen the sign in the sky. They want to, they want to come and, and, and see what is happening here. But it's probably more geopolitical than it is spiritual. The queen of Sheba, after all, is coming to see Solomon's wisdom and coming to see Solomon's kingdom, not out of curiosity, as much as she wants to know who I'm going to have to be dealing with here, what's happening in this place. And they're coming to see what it is that God has done, what it is that is happening among this people. Now, one of the most depressing things that you will learn and see in ministry is how often the dynamics within the people of God are exactly the same as they are in the outside world when it comes to relating to one another on the basis of who has power. It doesn't have to be a lot of power. It's all contextual. Uh, often you can be in a church situation 
where the meanest and most aggressive people are actually governing and running that congregation simply because everybody's exhausted by them. Nobody wants to have to have the conversation with them. And so you simply yield to it. You don't have to be in a big, visible role in order to see that. And what you see happening here in this text is not that the nations are acting like the nations. This is expected that Babylonians would act like Babylonians. They have an accountability before God. The Assyrians act like Assyrians. They have an accountability before God. But the problem in this text is not that. The problem is that Hezekiah is acting like them in this instance. Hezekiah is showing them everything that is in his storehouse, everything that is there in terms of his wealth, in terms of his power visibly seen. And he's doing that by adopting the very same values that they have. That's the very same thing that he rebelled against earlier. When the Assyrians sent a threatening letter to Hezekiah, seeking to get him to yield, you'll have that happen. People will send you an anonymous email or people will come up to you at some point in your ministry and say, you know, I don't think this, but people are concerned. You know, there are all sorts of strategies that folks have and it's always uh, the, the same thing. When that happened to Hezekiah, the text says that he went and took that letter and spread it before the Lord. But now, here, here he is that is showing his visible power. He is the one who had seen how that bronze serpent in the wilderness that had been a sign of God's power in the vulnerability of his people, a sign that John tells us points us directly toward the cross. He destroyed it when it became a sign of power in its own right, an idol among the people of God. And now Hezekiah is forgetting that his power is not seen in his visible swagger, but in his vulnerability in the fact that he is here existing in his weakness through the power of God. Now, one of the things that you're going to learn eventually in ministry, if you're going to thrive, is that you will not look back and see and long for those moments when you felt as though you had the most visible power and success. You will look back and see God most closely present with you, most evidently powerful through your ministry, not when you were strong and envied, but sometimes when it's hard for you to even get out of the bed. And it's difficult to learn that lesson because in a culture that values displaying and winning. Often within the church, we adopt those very same values and attempt to mimic that sort of dynamic within the people of God with 
without realizing that the power that we have comes with being crucified with Christ, comes in our weakness and in our childlikeness and in our dependency and in the fact that we are walking as those who have been executed already. Most of the challenges that are going to come to your integrity will not be to do evil things. Most of the challenges to your integrity will be to do good things in worldly ways. And that's one of the ways, one of the reasons that you can see some of the meanest and most carnal people that you will ever meet within the church of Jesus Christ have pristine doctrine. But they don't have a sense of dependence upon God. Some of the moments when you will find yourself in the worst places of temptation will be when you are attempting to operate out of your own resources, operate out of the flesh, to look around and to see all of these models of winning and to seek to emulate them within ministry and it will destroy you. Hezekiah should have known this. Because Hezekiah is someone who encountered God at the moment he was about to die. He was someone who stood within the people of God that had an entire history of God saying, you don't fight like the Babylonians. You don't fight like the Assyrians. You fight through my spirit. The past needs to reframe the present. But secondly... The integrity of the kingdom reframes the present in light of the future. Isaiah comes and says, Hezekiah, what'd you do? He said, I met these Babylonians. I showed them my stuff. He said, how much of your stuff did you show them? All of it. Hezekiah says, in my house. It's not his house. My house. I showed them everything. And Isaiah says, all of it is going to be hauled away. Your sons are going to be eunuchs. Your your hope in your line is going to be cut off. All of your pomp and all of your majesty, you will be servants to the people that you are trying to impress with your power. That's what Isaiah says. And Hezekiah's response sounds really spiritual. The word that the Lord has spoken is good. A lot of times, the very thing that we say that collapses us will sound really spiritual. Will sound sometimes even biblical. But why? Why is Hezekiah saying this? He says, so what as long as I have peace and security in my days? Hezekiah is assuming that his call here is about him. He is willing to sacrifice the future for the sake of his present peace and security. That is a tragedy. That is the way of the pagan nations who would sacrifice their children in order to have rain and crops right now. It is not the way of Jesus Christ. And the temptation is always there for the church to say, 
What difference does it make if we sacrifice our ability to do future ministry and future witness as long as we have stability right now? That's the reason that you have institutions seeking to protect themselves when it comes to the scourge of sexual abuse rather than people who have been through the trauma of that horror. Why? Because they say, we don't want the tumult now. So we will be silent in the face of this so that we can keep peace and security in our days. That's the reason why there are people in church after church after church after church that will be really, really bold, it seems, in talking about sins that aren't taking place among the power brokers within that particular congregation, but really muted and silent or super vague and generic about the sins that are. And that can just change from congregation to congregation depending upon who has the power. The problem with all of this is accountability before God, the judgment seat of Christ, and the problem is also people are overhearing you. You look at the numbers that came out just this last uh, couple of weeks from Pew about the collapsing numbers of people in millennial and Generation Z, generations, who would call themselves Christians. And then you start asking why. Some of that has to do, as I've argued before, with a sense that it's no longer culturally necessary or useful to be a nominal Christian. But often when you talk to people, what you will find is not just that they think they've somehow moved beyond religion, but that they are tremendously angry at the fact that they think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is just a marketing scheme or just a hood ornament for some political ideology or some cultural movement. That's the reason why often when I encounter people who are hostile, not just ignorant of, but hostile to Christianity, I almost never find somebody who is hostile to Christianity on the basis of evaluating the theology. But almost always someone that if you talk to them long enough, you will find that they encountered something within the church that is horrible. When they think of Jesus, they think of some religious aunt. They think of some hypocritical youth pastor. They think of some bullying preacher. They think of some horrible experience. The hatred that comes from that is not the sort of hatred that Jesus says the church should expect because they're not hating us because we are like Jesus in that instance. They are hating us because we are not like Jesus in that instance, and they are identifying him with us. 
But if you see not just the people who are immediately in front of you in the moment, but you see the calling that God has given to you to future generations, then that means that your attitude is going to be like that of the Apostle Paul who says, I did not yield to the Judaizers for a second. Why not? It would have been easy to do, and it would have given Paul peace, wouldn't have had to be driven out of town, would have given him security. Paul could have taught all day long as long as he didn't challenge that particular point of what the false teachers were teaching. But he said, I didn't do that, and why? I wouldn't yield to them for a second so that the gospel would be preserved for you. Jesus went to the cross in part because he was charged with violating the temple. He walks into the temple and he sees people using the very presence of God as though it were a power abstracted from God, as though they could ignore the vulnerable, ignore those who were marginalized because they didn't have the power of wealth and winning in the moment. And Jesus cleansed his temple. The zeal for your house, he says, has consumed me. They said, see, that shows you he doesn't really know God. He doesn't really believe the Bible. They charged Jesus with losing his religion in a theological sense when Jesus was actually losing his religion in the southern folk language sense. And Jesus says, if I am lifted up, not in this sort of impressive glory, but in the vulnerability of the cross, that is what will draw all people to me. That is the charge that he has given to you. There are people watching you who aren't yet Christians, who are wondering if your religion is just the same old social Darwinism. If your religion is about your finding a reason to hold to all the same politics you would have, all the same cultural movements you would have, all the same people you would hang around, even if Jesus were still dead. They're wondering if your religion is about simply making your way in life easier or if there is really a drivenness within you to see the fact that you will stand and give an account before the judgment seat of Christ, and so will everyone else that you encounter, so that you are willing to crucify yourself, to sanctify yourself, to bear the shame and the reproach and the vulnerability of the cross, to refuse to conform to all of the herds that will make it easy for you to be protected within them and instead to stand up and say, I am not a servant of people. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. They want to see if you are a voice parroting all the stuff that you need to parrot, parrot in order to succeed 
or if you are someone carrying a word that bears its own integrity from God, even when the institutions do not. And the reason this is important is exactly why Isaiah repeats this in Isaiah 39, right before Isaiah 40, with that revelation of the light that is shining in darkness. It's because when everything seems to be lost, the power of God shines and the darkness cannot overcome it. There are a lot of people angry with the church because the church holds the gospel. But there are a lot of people angry with the church because the church is out of step with the gospel. First kind of anger, Jesus calls to account. Second kind of anger, Jesus shares. Because you look at him there in the temple, that's him in the courtyard. That's him with the lampstand, losing your religion. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room, some of whom you are preparing to carry the brokenness of the cross into a hurting world, some of whom you are working right now to conform and to purge, some who are right now in bondage to things that they need to be freed from. Some in this room right now who are scared and who need to be given courage. Lord, I pray in all of those cases that you would do that. And Lord, I pray for every man and woman in this room as they're studying those Hebrew note cards, as they're preparing those sermons for preaching class, as they're sitting and looking over their notes for church history, Lord, would you remind them that they are doing all of this not to get a degree, but in order that they can proclaim the glory of the gospel reflected in the face of Jesus Christ to people who are right now, some of them, angry and hostile to Jesus into his church. Would you enable them not to see those people as enemies to be destroyed, but as future brothers and sisters in Christ? And would you help to propel us along with that? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.